0: Hello, everyone. I'm Jake Bland, here with my co-host. Hey, I'm Klaus. And this is Real Specific, where every month we focus on a subgenre of movies, take a few examples, and delve into what makes this genre great, or not so great. This month, we are covering Civil War spaghetti westerns. Today, we are covering The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Sergio Leone's 1966 spaghetti western, in which three bandits are chasing after stolen Confederate gold. This, in my opinion, is the quintessential spaghetti western, and today we'll cover not just how the film defined the genre, but some of the legends from behind the scenes, and how it tells a European history through an American lens, while showing American history through Italian eyes. <laughs>
1: All right, so what's first?
0: The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly came out in 1966 in Italy. Didn't come out here until 1967, I believe. Funny thing is, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, third in the Man With No Name trilogy or the Dollars trilogy, as they are known. However, all three of them came out in the same year in the U.S. In any particular order, or... In the original order, it came out a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good, the bad, and the ugly, but they split them up by just a few months. The same year? Same year. Wow. This is before the Disney-level marketing teams. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So they were originally released 64, 65, 66, but that was in Europe. I believe in America, 67. I remember looking at it because the first one, Fistful of Dollars, January 67. Few dollars more, May of 67. And The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in December. Like, the 29th of December, so right at the end of the year. Wow. That's (laughs) wild. I I just thought that was, like, really fucking cool because if I had been around at that point, I would have been like, Damn, the Sergio Leone guy is pumping he some is shit out.
1: Prolific,
0: <laughs> motherfucker sits around and writes a three-hour movie in like half a day. I guess.
1: Yeah, I was about to say it's not like they're shorts. <laughs> <laughs> mm.
0: So that that is the first point I want to make about this movie: this runtime,
1: like right at three hours. Man, when I opened up to watch it, because it's been a little while since I've, I'd seen it, I was like. Is this with credits? Is there extras? The director's cut? What is going on here? Uh, Did you watch it on Amazon? Yeah, I did. Okay, so I
0: will say that Amazon is the quote-unquote English extended version, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the version where uh, Martin Scorsese actually helped restore 14 minutes of lost footage and put it back into the movie. Well, thank God he recovered that because... Right? Yeah. Because I'm sure it was
1: 14 minutes of crucial fucking information that the movie didn't get across in the first place. I mean, how would we get the feeling of the wild, wild Spaghetti West without those extra 14 minutes of horse riding? (laughs) Well, yeah. You got to
0: get uh, an aerial shot of someone riding through the desert of quote-unquote
1: the Southwest... I have to say when you pitched this subgenre series I had heard the term spaghetti western but I'd never knew what it was I thought I was like throwing spaghetti on the wall see what sticks
0: okay so that's a good point if uh, any of our listeners don't know spaghetti westerns was a very weird specific genre that popped up in the 60s and only lasted until near the end of the 70s and it's these American western movies but they're made mostly by Italian and Spanish directors. Gen- generally, when they were first called spaghetti westerns, it was American reviewers just basically talking shit. Because they were like, oh, these fucking Italians think they can make western movies. There's All
1: of them suck. Fucking spaghetti westerns. Just being racist, mostly. And then they saw Clint Eastwood and they're like, you know what? This isn't half bad.
0: (laughs) That's almost the exact truth, because this movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is really what brought spaghetti westerns out into the open. It's what defined the genre as it kind of came into its own. It's kind of amazing to me, just because, especially around this time, the Italians were huge in filmmaking. Even all the way through toward the end of the 80s, the Italians had a market share on the European film industry. I just recently, like uh, within the past couple of years, gotten into uh, Italian movies, really. Mostly with Giallo horror. Uh, if any, any horror fans out there are listening, I just got into Giallo horror a couple of years ago, and let me tell you, that is some good fucking shit. I can't wait until I
1: finally put a list together and we go through four or five of those movies, and I can't wait to be terrified. I am not a horror person, so this will be a bumpy ride. We've fucked around enough. Let's actually jump into it. Those intro titles. I fucking love
0: them. A, you have that score. The score of this movie cannot be understated. I mean, it's fucking classic. I think even people who haven't seen a Western before would recognize the
1: music. You hear that doo doo doo, and you're in... Exactly. You're in New Mexico, or somewhere in Italy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Spain, most likely.
1: Spain.
0: Any any of the Spaghetti Westerns that have a good budget, most of them shot in Spain, because they actually do have a section of desert. But they are also shot in Italy, and sometimes West Germany, every once in a while, even in the American West. So, you know, it just kind of depends on the movie and what the budget looks like. So the
1: intro titles, it kind of like breaks into introducing the first the main characters the main three characters right? the good the bad and the ugly as you'd expect it
0: it almost reminds me of like what they do with uh 007 movies you know James Bond movies where they'll kind of have like the outline figures of your main character and you can you know exactly who it is with the Bond films because you've probably seen the other Bond films and you just know that character no matter what but with this especially it being the third movie, that outline of Clint Eastwood is just fucking iconic. You know, the the between the hat, the cigar, and the poncho, you can't mistake him. It's fucking clean. I don't know what they use to do that kind of, like, peeling back. It looks like some kind of chemical process that they do on the actual
1: film to, like, reveal the intro titles, and I love it. I like to... I, or I find it interesting because I don't I can't think of many films where at the very beginning of the film they say hey this is the protagonist this guy's the antagonist and this guy's the ugly antagonist I guess <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to know up front okay like this is probably the good guy <laughs> well, and the
0: funny thing to me is is like we're talking about the first what is it like 20 minutes or so of this film because like the first I think 10 or 15 just the first two characters like the first we introduce the ugly or tuco as we come to find out his name is and it's literally just like three bounty hunters walking into a room you hear gunfire and then guy jumps out of a window with a fucking big thing of meat in one hand and a gun in the other and it just freeze frames on (laughs) the ugly like did we need that
1: probably not is it awesome fuck yeah it is And I don't know what that character, like as far as film terminology goes, like what role he fills, but he's big enough to be in the title and to be introduced at the beginning of the movie. I don't think he's the protagonist. I don't think he's the antagonist. And I don't know what you'd classify him as. And it's interesting that he's like, fills such a big part of the movie. Here's the thing. I think he was originally written to be your comic relief because
0: out of, out of especially our three main characters, he's the funny one. He's great. Most of the scenes he's in, he just really, like, brightens up the screen. He brings all of the emotion forward. But, as the film goes on, he kind of steals the fucking show. He's kind of the lovable asshole. Yeah, Uh, well, I mean, most of them are. uh, To be fair, even uh, Clint Eastwood's character, Blondie, he's an anti-hero. You can't really call him a hero or a clean protagonist, because... Let's face it, he's not a good guy either. No, he's good compared to Angel Eyes. Well, yeah, yeah. not too many people are not good looking compared to Angel Eyes. That guy's a fucking evil motherfucker.
1: (laughs) And I like the kind of freeze frame they chose for Angel Eyes, who plays the, the bad in the movie because it's right after he kills somebody and then he starts laughing and that's when they freeze it and say this is the bad guy and and can i just say lee van cleef the actor who's playing
0: angel eyes fucking perfect face for a villain like the, the way he's got his mustache he's got the kind of squinty eyes the low black
1: hat pulled right over his eyes Perfect looking villain in my, and, my book. And that nose, I mean, you could cut open an Amazon package. I mean, <laughs> just very sharp, villainous features. <laughs> Razor sharp beak, ready to go.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, we're finally introduced way too long into the credits. I think I wrote it down somewhere. Yes, 18 minutes into the movie before Eastwood finally shows up. Like, this is the guy we followed through two movies. Technically, Lee Van Cleef teamed up with him in the second movie, playing a very different character. (laughs) But Clint Eastwood is our only kind of solid character that is through all three of these movies. And seriously, 18 fucking minutes? I gotta wait 18 minutes to see the guy I came to see in this movie. Come the fuck on, Sergio it's i'll give it to sergio he knows how to build tension he knows how to make you wait he's not gonna fucking do anything
1: quickly as we said three hour (laughs) runtime what i like too about when he's introduced and i may be misremembering it but when he comes in i think and correct me if i'm wrong we hear him say something before we actually see him on screen. Oh,
0: absolutely. Which is interesting for this character because he's known for very few words. And uh, once again, Sergio's writing and directing is known for as little dialogue as possible. He's trying to just show these long single shots with tense, very little dialogue, as much as he can. So the fact that Clint Eastwood speaks
1: from off screen before we even get to see him. It's pretty weird and rare, especially for these two. It was noteworthy, um, but you make a good point. The dialogue, theres it's not extensive, but the dialogue that's there is pithy, laconic, and it hits hard. Oh, absolutely. It, it's to the point. You gotta love that.
0: And a lot of the times, it's very quick. Yeah. You, you notice, like, uh, there's a scene later in the movie where we're getting some very crucial narr- or not narration of uh, very crucial plot points given to us. And the guy who's giving it is just like, <laughs> we'll get there. but I, I just love that. We're not going to let the plot get in the way
1: of a great fucking movie. We're going to keep trucking through it. You have to keep room for 14 more minutes of horse riding. That's right. <laughs> okay. So Eastwood is introduced. So
0: Eastwood's introduced. He's saving Tuco the Ugly, who we were introduced to in the first scene, he's once again accosted by three more bounty hunters, like, Jesus Christ, how much is this guy's head worth, that there are six or possibly seven bounty hunters after him, we find out $2,000. Which, I'm going to say, in the 1800s, 1860s especially, I'm assuming that's a lot of fucking money. Yeah, let's do the math on that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I could look it up if I wanted to. Actually... I, I already know this because of other things I've done. The conversions for uh, inflation and stuff don't go past like 1902 or 1906, something like that. So even if we did the conversion, it would basically just end up saying a fuckload of money. A lot of money. <laughs> so uh, he rescues Tuco. Tuco's all smiles and happy thanking him. Cut to him on the back of a donkey cussing him for everything he's fucking worth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and this is gets into the part of the movie where the good, or Blondie, comes up with this great play to make money. And this kind of shows that he may be the good character, relatively speaking, but he's not a perfect or perfectly good person.
0: And the, this is what kind of gives him status of anti-hero protagonist versus straight-up villain like Lee Van Cleef's character I mean it's fun when he brings him in there, Tuco's cussing him for everything he's worth, he's just talking to the sheriff like give me my fucking money here's your bounty, throwing him around, treating him like shit right into the next scene where clearly he's hanging around to watch him be hung my favorite part of this scene though is the reading of the charges for Tuco, did you pay attention during that? yeah a little bit I'm going to go ahead and play a clip of the charges read for Zuko right before he's about to be hung.
2: The condemned is found guilty of the crimes of murder, armed robbery of citizens, state banks and post offices, the theft of sacred objects, arson in a state prison, perjury, bigamy, deserting his wife and children, citing prostitution, kidnapping, extortion, Saving stolen goods, selling stolen goods, passing counterfeit money, and contrary to the laws of this state, the condemned is guilty of using marked cards and low Therefore, according to the powers vested in us, we sentence the accused here before us, Tuco Benedicto Pacifico Juan Maria Ramirez. Known as the Rat. And any other aliases you might have. To hang by the neck until dead may God have mercy on his soul
0: proceed so <laughs> my favorite one out of that is inciting prostitution i'm not exactly sure how you incite prostitution because it's it's not like inciting a riot or inciting a mob you know like you run into a theater and yell fire you know you I, I don't really know how you like run into a saloon and yell whore and that then they start blowing you, I guess? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a fun list of charges. To
0: bring this up, Sergio Leone supposedly did a fuckload of research. He went to the Library of Congress here in the U.S., did a whole bunch of research on the Civil War, because he said he wanted to get the details right uh, for this movie. And maybe he did. I don't fucking know. I'm not a historian. I know what I was taught about the Civil War in grade school, and that's about it. Most of which had to do with uh, Sherman's March to the Sea because I'm from Georgia, and it turns out that
1: shit was horrific. (laughs) But thats it's a good point to bring up because the Civil War in this movie kind of sets the, the tone or the backdrop to everything else that happens. I mean, the plot, I don't know if you wanted to get into it, but they're after gold, Confederate gold, they're chasing down names for Confederate soldiers. There's Union soldiers involved in impersonations and prisons. And we'll get to it, but I do have questions about the bridge scene when we get to it. <laughs> I've got some notes. Do not worry. <laughs> okay. Um, so, But yeah, as you brought it up, uh, I
0: forgot to mention, in the be- when we're first introduced to Angel Eyes, he's talking to this guy. I don't even know if we ever learned his name in the scene or not, but... That guy was actually one of the three Confederate soldiers who helped steal this gold. Um, and Angel Eyes is there to get information about who knows where the gold is. Because apparently only one of the three went and buried the gold somewhere, for whatever reason. Finds it out, kills the guy and the guy's family, takes his money, goes back to the guy who hired him, which was another one of the gold robbers, tells him the information, gets paid for his job, and then kills him, too. So, uh, yeah, Angel Eyes is a pretty disgusting son of a bitch. But that is the driving force be- behind this film, as we have Angel Eyes trying to track down this $200,000
1: worth of stolen gold that is buried somewhere in the desert. We talked about the inflation having no idea, but knowing that 2000 on Tuco's bounty is a lot. And if... The good or Blondie kept trying to do their little scam about returning in the bounty and trying to free him by shooting the rope out, which is pretty, like,
0: classic so, badass. And this is, like, one of the more famous Western scenes people have talked about. Even, even if you watch Mythbusters, they did a Mythbusters on it to see if you could actually pull it off. Tuco's on the back of a horse. They're about to hang him. Right before they're about to whip the horse and have the horse run out from under him, Blondie shoots the rope, severing the tie. A little behind-the-scenes knowledge in this first one. The horse... Or wait, it's either the first one or the second one. uh, They rigged the noose, the rope that the noose was connected to, with a small explosive charge. And that's what actually severs the rope. But they didn't think about, Oh yeah, loud noises make horses run. So, the actor playing Tuco is literally on the horse with his hands tied behind his back. An explosive charge goes off, severing the rope, thank God. The horse runs the fuck off, and he can't do anything because his hands are literally tied (laughs) behind his back. So he can't get the horse to stop, and they said it took like 20 or 30 minutes before the horse stopped running. And he couldn't do anything about it. (laughs) Uh, The Italians are not known for being super safe while making their films, especially during the 60s and 70s. It is hilarious, though. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, classic scene. He shoots the rope, setting Tuco free, keeping him from being dead, and then shoots the hats off of a bunch of the men who are standing around so that none of them even want to pull their gun on Blondie. And they make their escape.
1: Which is another, I feel like... You see both of those things. I've definitely seen the hat thing referenced or in other movies, video games, TV shows coming up on up again. I guess this is the first time, maybe? Uh, I
0: believe it was also used in the second film, which was uh, for a few dollars more. I believe he did the same gimmick in that. So, not the first time, but definitely the most memorable. Go when Blondie and Tuco are splitting the money, Tuco just like, Look, man, it's my neck in the rope. I want more than half the money. Blondie's like, okay, buddy, but I could just let you hang and keep all the money myself. So (laughs) a little unrest there. We cut to another time the Blondie and Tuco are pulling the same gig in another town. Uh, This time for $3,000 because his bounty's gone up since he escaped execution last time. And it turns out Angel Eyes happens to be in the same town. This is where we get our exposition dump that I was telling you about where the... I believe it was a rebel soldier with (laughs) no legs half
1: a soldier yeah
0: (laughs) he he calls him half soldier because he's a dick (laughs) but he comes shuffling up to angel eyes and tells him the entire story about the gold basically what's been a mystery up to this point tells him about the men involved tells him who the gold came from all of that good stuff basically telling him where to get his next lead which is that he's looking for a man named bill carson and so angel eyes basically flips him a couple of coins and goes on his way to santa Ana to continue on the trail for the gold cue marty robbins soundtrack
1: (laughs) not (laughs) actually but
0: (laughs) tuco and blondie pull off their gig one more time they ride off together when blondie finally lets tuco off the horse he basically says you know it was good while it lasted but i think i'm gonna keep the money you can keep the rope which was fantastic line, but and if you ask me, tells him it's seventy miles that way to town. If he makes it, he makes it.
1: <laughs> I like too. He um, he says, I don't think you're going to be worth more than three thousand. So I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I love that the insult is, you'll never
0: be a good enough crook to be worth more than three grand. You're you're not bad enough. You're not killing enough people to be worth more than three grand. You piece of shit.
1: What? <laughs> so Tuco is pissed off, and that basically has severed their relationship to this point. Oh yeah, and let's let's be very clear: Clint
0: Eastwood is the one who initiated this problem. They had a tenuous but good relationship up to this point, and our protagonist is the one who practically leaves a man for dead. With his hands tied and a rope around his neck in the middle of the fucking desert. Because let's face it, in real life, 70 miles walk through the desert with no water, eh, don't think you're gonna make it. <laughs> so, Angel Eyes finds Carson's girlfriend in Santa Ana, roughs her up, finds out Carson is in the 3rd Cavalry with the uh, rebels, and just following that line where it goes. He doesn't kill the girlfriend, which is surprising to me, because if we're trying to make him a really evil badass, not, not really a lot of uh, woman killing in this. Now that I think about it,
1: that's a good point because he did not hesitate in the first scene to kill that farmer guy and, and both his, his kids. farmer's kids. Yeah, but were male, mm-hmm. male kids. It, did he shoot the guy's wife in that? No, she fainted. Really? After, after Angel Eyes left, she came in the room and saw her one of her. Sons and her husband on the ground, and she fainted. And it shifted the cinematography shifted to like her point of view to do to do the faint scene part, which I thought was interesting.
0: That's right. I I can't believe I actually forgot about that. Yeah, that's really weird because it's just like it wasn't it just him like leaving and her fainting and the
1: camera falling over basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. I can't believe I did. And he finds out he talks to somebody in like a camp, which I think were. Confederate soldiers who were basically like deserting or planning to desert or had already deserted and they're like all right where's the third where's this guy at and they say all right well he's either dead and you're not going to find him or if he's still alive he's at this prison camp
0: yeah the prison camp which was I believe it was called Batterville I'm not sure if this is real I didn't have time to look it up I'm assuming it was a real camp but they really try to make it out much more like Andersonville than they do a union camp that I know of. Seems like we would have heard about it, but <laughs> Yeah, the uh so these guys that he comes up, I, I think they're rebel soldiers that are retreating. They're in retreat, and I think they just stopped at this place to kinda like get some rest, heal up their wounded a bit, and then get the fuck out when they could. But yeah, I mean, basically a bottle of whiskey for one of these
1: guys, and apparently you can find out whatever you want. So they that leads Angel Eyes to going to the camp. At the same time, we have Blondie and Tuco who are going to the camp in a different manner. <laughs> uh, well, first, before we get there, I want
0: to mention Tuco walking into this town after going 70 miles through the desert, fucking bathing himself in the well, first off. Then goes into a shop that is closed, tells the guy he wants a gun, spends fucking like three minutes playing with the guns. (laughs) And apparently, a little behind the scenes again, the actor just really doesn't know much about guns at all. So he was like just picking them up and figured out how to pull them apart and would just look at them funny. And that's what he decided to do (laughs) as to go. (laughs) And he takes the gun out back, where th- apparently the shop has a practice shooting range, for whatever reason, shoots the targets, all three of them turn, shoots three bullets again, and snaps the heads off the targets as they're turned sideways, which was really fun. Uh, Didn't expect Tuco of all the characters to actually be a fucking dead shot. Uh, But yeah, just holds the keep up, takes his money, takes his everything, uh, apparently, it was not scripted, but Tuco takes the closed sign and sticks it in his mouth <laughs> the, the whole time. Every time Tuco does something that's not explicitly evil to the shopkeeper, the shopkeeper's just like, hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the shopkeeper realizes, that, uh, I kind of deserve this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, this is what happens in the West, I guess. I handed you a loaded <laughs> weapon. What did I expect? <laughs> yeah hmm so uh this is where tuco goes to a campsite that he knows about and hires three banditos that he knows to help him kill blondie he's like look you guys help me kill blondie i got a thousand dollars for each of you so and we cut to a town where all the a bunch of rebels are retreating they're coming into this town hopefully for a bit of respite and tuco and his three bandits show up they finally track down Blondie. The three bandits are coming through the hall. Open the door. Boom. Blondie shoots them all three fucking dead. Just looks at one of them and says, Your spurs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Okay. <laughs> He's, he's not supernatural he doesn't know the future but he can hear a man's spurs
1: walking down the hall that happens later in the movie too where he like or maybe it was before, where he recognizes Tuco's gun oh yeah somehow? that's later <laughs> in the yeah he
0: says something like every gun has its own ring or something like that as like Tuco's got a different gun now it can't be the same one
1: <laughs> i do like that there's almost this mythical western quality to these characters i mean they are shooting ropes out they're hearing gunshots and can recognize the gun the spur thing like i really like it because it's it's almost a supernatural gunslinger yeah it definitely
0: puts a, a heightened feel to everything but at the same time it's not romanticizing anything about westerns like Uh, You look back at a, a lot of the old American Westerns and everything is so romanticized. It's like, oh, don't you wish you could have lived in the Wild West where there was gambling booze and hookers everywhere, but the scenic, the scenic beauty of the land all around you and one man with his one horse and a campfire is all you need. Meanwhile, this is like, nah, dude, everything fucking sucked everyone was an asshole and if you said the wrong thing you were fucking dead
1: i thought that in the very first scene when angel eyes shows up and the farmer and his wife and the kids see him and you could tell the farmer guy and his wife like knows what's up like you're living out in the middle of nowhere this isn't the romanticized west this is like the grittier version you're out in the middle of nowhere a gunslinger shows up at your door you can't call the cops. Like, you're, it's you versus this highly trained killer, and you don't stand a chance. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. No chance whatsoever. I don't even know if that guy had a gun or not because it never showed him with one. And he was basically like, look, here's all my money. Go, go, go. So, anyway, Tuko gets the drop on Blondie. He makes him throw the noose over the rafters and says, put your head in the fucking noose. I'm going to shoot out this stool from underneath you, and I'm going to watch you hang.
1: Well, that's not exactly what happens. It's such an interesting scene though, because how Blondie gets out of this situation, it's he he's putting the noose on and you're like, you don't you, he gets out of it, but he doesn't he doesn't do it. It's not him. But also we don't even see exactly how he gets out of it. A little bit earlier like just
0: a few seconds earlier you hear cannon fire starting in the background. And just constantly roaring and, like, thunderous clouds are coming in. But it
1: is literally cannon fire. And they go on this diatribe.
2: Even when Judas hanged himself, there was a storm, too. That could be cannon fire. Cannon
1: fire or storm, it's all the same to you. Let's get biblical, Tuco. Come on, buddy. (laughs) And then Blondie in classic, I know every gun by its sound says uh Tuco uh those are cannons <laughs> <clears throat> pushes up glasses <laughs> he might have I mean he was squinting a lot he might need to get his eyes checked. <laughs> but anyway the cannons go off they explode you see nothing besides the swinging noose a few seconds later but the scene was interesting to me because you have Blondie putting the noose on like he's not to my knowledge planning any sort of escape Like, he's not, has a knife behind his back or anything. He's just, well, I guess I die now, and then the cannons go off and save him. Well, he has that look of either, I'm gonna die and I
0: don't give a shit, or I know I'm gonna get out of this because I'm fucking me and I don't die here. It's one of the two. You can't really tell which, but it once again brings this kind of heightened magical quality to the man with no name.
1: Yeah, he does have this kind of expression towards Tuco, like, are you serious? Fine. All right, here I go. (laughs) So the cannonball ruins this building. Tuco
0: fucking falls straight through the floor. And we just see the empty news swinging there by itself. This is when we are finally shown angel eyes riding into a uh, rebel camp. And he gets the Carson-Batterville information. And then we're treated to a nice... Long or not long, but nice little sequence of uh, Tuco tracking Blondie down after he's gotten away. I like I like this sequence, but at the same time, we could have we could have done without it. I think we could have just went ahead and kind of shown Blondie setting up his next deal with some other crook, and then Tuco showing up. We could assume that he tracked him down. I don't think we have to see him go to three different
1: campfires and see the three different cigarillos until he finds the lit one, you know? <laughs> There's one thing that just sticks in my mind, is how they the hardcore zoom in on the cigarillo. <laughs> like, it was shocking. <laughs> well,
0: I, it's a little shocking, but to be fair, by this point in the third movie, those things are the man with no name. Like I said, between the hat,
1: the cigarillo, and the poncho, that is your character. Now that you mention it and we'll get to the final scene, but he has a cigarilla, I think the entire time. like I kept expecting him to like spit it out for the last like few minutes or something, but he's he has it in his mouth the entire time. That's a fair point. I'm not sure if there is a frame in this movie where Clint Eastwood is
0: not either holding, lighting or smoking a fucking cigarillo. And another great behind the scenes fact is, Clint Eastwood fucking hated those cigars. So much to the point... Alright, so we know Sergio Leone loves his long takes where he doesn't cut for a long while. And if he does cut, it's just to get a different perspective. He usually tried to use multiple cameras if he could. So, he liked to take a lot of takes. Because they're long and he wants them to be perfect. You have Clint Eastwood chain-smoking these fucking cigars and he hates them. To the point where he eventually told Sergio... One of the quotes that we heard from, uh, or that I read from him on set was, you better get this next fucking
1: shot or I'm going to puke. <laughs> I imagine if you're smoking that many cigarettes, even if you like the first couple, after a while you're like, Sergio, come on. <laughs> well, that, that's another thing. Two of our main
0: three actors couldn't actually talk to the director directly. They had to have a
1: translator in between them. I... To this moment right now, I did not consider at all the language barrier. <laughs> yes. All right, so that's another fun thing. One of the main reasons
0: Italy was so big in uh, cinema back in these days is because they were set up to dub movies. They had all these recording studios, and they dubbed most of their films in almost, in like all of the biggest European languages. That way they could send them out all across Europe anyone could watch them and they wouldn't have to be subtitled, they could just be dubbed. So they had like a cast of voice actors for this language, a cast of voice actors for this one. So a lot of these Italian movies, the actors on set are reading their lines in their language. So the actors acting against each other aren't even speaking the same languages. And I think you can notice it in this one, especially in the scene where Angel Eyes is getting the information from the quote-unquote half-soldier, the guy with no legs... They rarely show the half-soldier's mouth when he's talking, because I'm pretty sure he's speaking in Italian or Spanish, probably (laughs) Italian, and they dubbed over it with English. So if you're watching it, like, his mouth doesn't match the words at fucking
1: all. (laughs) I didn't notice that at all. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Our three main guys seem to all be able to speak English. Clint Eastwood obviously could. The guy, uh, the guy who plays Tuco, he actually speaks French. Sergio Leone also speaks French, so they could talk to each other one on one. But Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood, neither of them spoke French or Italian, so they couldn't speak with Sergio straight one on one at all. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tuco tracks down Blondie, get, catches up to him just as Blondie is about to pull the same trick he was doing with Tuco, but with another criminal apparently named Shorty. We don't even get to meet Shorty at all. They're reading his charges and hang him. Blondie doesn't get to save him because Tuco has him at gunpoint and doesn't allow it to. Then we get to Tuco takes Blondie hostage, walks him out into the desert, tells him he's going to walk him a hundred miles across the desert. As Soon as Blondie goes to take a sip of water he shoots the canteen out of his hand shoots the hat off his head and tells him he's going to be baking in the sun and that his, basically tells him his white ass is going to fry in the sun because unlike Mexicans he's got fair skin. <laughs> and he kind of does. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, compared to everybody else he's pretty white. Like, everybody else is at least, like, they look like they spend time out in the sun. Clint Eastwood doesn't look nearly as tanned
1: as he would if he really lived in the yeah. West. And and after that scene, I mean, we see Blondie, and, like, he's in rough shape. I mean, he gets burnt. Oh, my God. The special, the special effects make up for this. I swear to God. <laughs>
0: His face is supposed to be burnt and blistered, but it looks like they just caked makeup on his face like (laughs) in weird stripe patterns like it looks like somebody burned him with something (laughs) instead of him getting sunburned (laughs) but they do he does eventually fall down tuco's taunting him with water pouring it out and suddenly a wagon appears in the distance or i guess a carriage a horse-drawn carriage just four horses running full fucking speed out of nowhere over the horizon. And Tuco runs and slows it down. We see on the side that it's from Confederate headquarters, which I'm not sure if in the middle of a war, Confederate headquarters is marking all of their wagons (laughs) for everyone to know. But, you know, whatever. It's for the audience. Sure. We we have to know somehow, I guess. (laughs) We never would have been able to tell with the pile of dead rebel soldiers in the back (laughs) the gray uniforms (laughs) (laughs) so tuco finds these dead soldiers inside he starts looting the bodies and what does he find on a man with an eye patch over his left eye but a snuff box with the name inscribed on the inside bill carson all right so here's my one problem with this when Angel Eyes is tracking down Bill Carson, he first finds out he's going by the name Bill Carson now because that wasn't his real name. Why does he have a snuffbox uh,
1: with his fake name on it? He's in too deep. Right? <laughs> I completely forgot about that because that's the first scene where he's like, I would have found him by now if he was under his real name. Yeah. Oh my God. What name is he going by now?
0: Why do you think he's under a fake name? Because I would have found him by now. What? What? Why does he have a snuffbox labeled Bill Carson then? What? He, he got so deep into his character, he decided to go buy a fucking snuffbox and like, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: inscribe that with Bill Carson for me. I feel like you could pull Sergio out of retirement or someone and you could have a whole movie just on like whatever the gold gang was doing and how they got the gold and whose name was who. But I guess the one of the ends uh, lines during the bridge scene that guy says names don't fucking matter or whatever, which I guess but is the that, whole. That's series. more of a
0: reference towards Eastwood's character, who is the man with no name, because throughout all three of these movies, anytime uh, his character shows up, he always has a nickname in every movie. It's mm-hmm. different for each movie, but no one asks him for his name, and he never gives a name. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of the man with no name thing, but. Come on, man. We, we can't get one plot point right about these three guys who robbed the gold. <laughs> I mean, sir, everything to do with the background to this plot is fucked up. All right? You got three guys who stole the gold. Only one of the three knows where it's buried? How? Two of them are dead within the first 20 minutes of the movie. The third one, we find out, is going under assumed name, he- uh, an assumed name. Has a fucking snuff box with his fake name on it, and is now dead because he who the fuck knows what happened. He didn't retreat fast enough from the union, I guess.
1: Coming up with names on the spot's pretty tough, I would know. And so maybe he just found the snuff bottles on a dead body. Whatever, it's the subplot. They find a carriage full of dead bodies, which by the way is a great hook.
0: Oh, it is. I yeah. love. I love that. So, I and I do love this scene because Tuco, being the piece of shit that he is, just rummaging through these bodies, he's looking at the snuff box, takes a little bit of the snuff, snorts it, closes the snuff box, hears a rattle behind him, turns to shoot, and then realizes that it's one of the almost dead soldiers, happens to be Bill Carson, and he's about to die of fucking dehydration if he wasn't already dying from whatever reason they put him in the carriage in the first place. This is where our other two characters finally get clued in to the actual plot of the movie. Bill Carson says...
2: Water. Water. Two hundred thousand in gold. The always just get me water. What's that Carson. you say? Who the hell are you? Carson. My name is Bill Carson now. It's Carson. Surprise attack. Oh, Dad, I'm here. Jackson. No? Carson. Carson, Carson. Yeah, Carson? yeah. Glad to meet you, Carson. I'm Lincoln's grandfather. What was that you said about the dollars? 200,000, old oh, man. Was the 3rd Cavalry's. Baker has nothing. The gold. I hit the gold. Where? Where, here? Here? Talk. Here. Huh? cemetery. Which cemetery? The one. i sad grave. Which grave? Have a name? Have a number? Come on, you dummy talk. Order. You talk first, huh? I'll give you water later. Saddle Cemetery, okay. In the grave, okay. But it must have a name or a number on it. It must be a thousand, five thousand. Don't die, huh? Don't die, I'll get you water. Stay there. Don't move, I'll get you water. Don't die until later.
0: You son of a great graveyard name by the way (laughs) Tuco goes to get the water before he can get back he sees Blondie on the ground next to the now dead Bill Carson Blondie tells him you may know the graveyard but I know which grave Blondie passes out because he's exhausted he's dehydrated Tuco immediately
1: starts trying to save his life because he doesn't know which grave and he needs Blondie to tell him (laughs) And I like I really love that because as much as there's questions on like that subplot, the points that matter are there the the tie Tuco and Blondie together, the ugly and the good by I know where the grave is or I know where the grave site is, the cemetery well, you don't know where the grave is, and I know which one it is is such a that point is made, and it ties them together exactly enemies. we we don't like each other, hell, we've both tried to kill each other, but
0: we need each other to get our money. Which, greed is the one thing that drives all of these fucking main characters. Which is why they're all shitty people,
1: but hey, it's what we got. <laughs> and meanwhile, while they're finding this out, Angel Eyes is starting to catch up. So at this point, uh, where is Angel Eyes? Angel Eyes, ooh. He found out about Angel Eyes,
0: uh, he found out about Batterville. He's probably already back at Batterville by this point. Because we don't catch up with him until much later. Tuco takes Blondie to a mission. This is where Blondie gets all healed back up. It apparently a good amount of time passes. Tuco and Blondie are dressed in the dead rebel soldiers uniforms. Tuco's telling everybody that his name is Bill Carson, which... I mean, he's got the paperwork, he's got the snuff box, he must be Bill Carson.
1: That's basically a passport. <laughs> yeah,
0: he's wearing he's wearing the eye patch over his left eye most of the time. <laughs> uh, so he goes to this mission to heal up Blondie. This is where we meet Tuco's brother. And this is what I meant when I said uh, Tuco kind of steals the show here. We get Tuco's full backstory. We know jack shit about Blondie. Blondie's just a cool motherfucker out doing his fucking thing. Meanwhile, Tuco's a full-fledged character. We get backstory about his family, how his mother died years ago, his father just died a week or two ago. Uh, He's been estranged from his entire family for nine years. His brother's a priest at this mission that he went to. And we get all this exposition, don't we? See a great performance by the guy playing Tuco. He's going back and forth between breaking down, crying, and trying to pretend that everything's okay. He's been spending so much of his life just telling himself, I'm the big badass criminal guy. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I'm okay with that. And now he's faced with the hard facts that because he was out there doing that, because he started this life trying to provide for his family, he failed to do that. His family's dead. And now he missed all that time with them. But Blondie hears all of this exposition and backstory. And when they get finally get back onto the wagon to continue their quest for the gold, they actually seem to bond. They actually seem friendly for the first time in this entire moment. Before, it was a tenuous relationship, completely pulled together by greed, and now it kind of looks like they might actually be friends. As much as you can be friends with somebody in the West. <laughs> as much as you can be friends with someone who just made you walk a hundred miles in the <laughs> desert and almost shot you in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and this brings us to one of my favorite scenes in the entire fucking movie, which is them riding on the wa- uh, on the uh, carriage through the desert, they see a large army coming towards them, and they stop and they go, Are those uniforms blue or gray? Are they blue or gray? Oh, they're gray. Tuko starts yelling, Hooray for Robert E. Lee! Hooray for... <laughs> Hooray for whoever the fuck to do with the Confederacy! Blah, 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 blah. And this general or whoever rides up, stops, takes his gloves, and starts slapping the dust off of the arm of his uniform, to show the
1: wonderful navy blue of the Union <laughs> uniform. <laughs> oh, that is a hilarious scene. It reminds me, a similar things happens in The Patriot, where Mel Gibson opens up a tavern. And he's like, hail the king. And like 18 knives and bowls and <laughs> bottles get thrown at him. Yes. <laughs> before he goes back in and like recruits his army. But side note, but yeah, that's a, it's a really funny scene. <laughs> yeah, I just love that. And cut to our two
0: main guys being taken into a POW camp, still wearing their fake Confederate uniforms. We figure out that it is Batterville. And here's Angel Eyes. Now, so I read some things online. One of the things online said that Angel Eyes is pretending to be a Union officer here, but the other Union officers and enlisted men all treat him as if he's actually a Union officer. So I would take it to believe that... He is an actual Union officer.
1: That was my impression, too, because I was a little confused on that, because we have Tuco and Blondie, who are clearly impersonating, whether intentional or not, in their uniforms, and Angel Eyes, who wasn't. I mean, everyone answered to him. You're right. And he kind of used that authority to try to interrogate people, trying to find out about bill carson the gold
0: and the gold was stolen from the union army so it makes sense that they would send one of their officers with a background in manhunting basically to go find it it makes complete sense but i don't know why some of these people online are talking about him impersonating an officer it just
1: it is a little like it is a little for me at least confusing because at the beginning you know he goes to this farmer stuff i'm like okay this guy's a of either a bounty hunter or he hunts down people. He's a killer or whatever. That's his profession. He's a gun for hire type person. And then we see him in the union in the Batterville. And it's like, is he in the union now? Is he like hired by them? How is that relationship? Can he just like take leave for a few months to chase down gold on his own whim? Like, so I I was a little confused about his relationship in the union, but I didn't see direct any evidence directly to support, he was definitely impersonating, or he was definitely in there. For me, it was just kind of a little wishy-washy.
0: Yeah, especially because, let's face it, if you were a high-ranking officer in an army and you just decided to take off your uniform and ride off one day, I'm assuming you would be brought up on charges of desertion. Right. (laughs) Just saying. Uh, But maybe because, maybe he had orders from on high to go find the gold, whatever. Either way. Here in Batterville is where he he recognizes Blondie and Tuco, realizes Tuco's now going by the name Bill Carson, which is the one man that Angel Eyes is searching for. Has Tuco, well, I guess we actually find out before this that Angel Eyes has a group of bandits that are working for him outside of the military. So it's very clear, like, he has a rapport in this section of the world that the military does not. He has his own gang. That he's doing shit with. Which does kind of bring an interesting point. Especially for Italians making these Civil War spaghetti westerns. Which I want to focus on. Which is, you have to remember World War Two. Italy was part of the Axis powers, obviously. It's a country that was devastated by war. Is also a country that didn't do very well in the war at all. Whereas you have the Germans and the Japanese who had these very high points at certain points during World War II, Italy never really had that. They had one or two battles that they did well in, but most of the time when they did do well, they had to have their asses saved by the Nazis. Most of the war was them just getting their asses handed to them by the Allies. So when it comes to them talking about the Civil War, you get a very different feel, because they generally identify themselves with the South with the people who were beaten down by the North. It's a very different feel. It's very odd, and that's one of the things that really
1: sets Spaghetti Westerns apart from the American ones. And this might be good homework for me or anyone who's listening, but I think there, in Italy, there was, I don't know if it was to Civil War level, but I think there is sort of a North-South separation or antagonism within Italy. So I actually found this out just
0: researching... The very scant research I did for this series, uh, and I might do more later on so I can expound upon it in our future Spaghetti Western episodes, but when Mussolini was, I can't think of the word right now, not dethroned, but overthrown, whatever. uh, Usurped? Usurped, whatever. He was kicked out because people were like, fuck you, you fucking suck, get the fuck out. You fired. He retreated to the north of Italy, where he still had the people behind him. He actually set up his own base in this small northern Italy town, and Nazis sent people down to try and help him reclaim Italy. This was before World War II was even over. Nazis were still fairly powerful. There was still another, like, year or so left in the war, I think. Once again, not an expert in this. Don't know the full story. I just got a very rough overview of the situation. But, toward the end of World War II, the Italians were fighting their own civil war against this dictatorship. But in their civil war, the Northerners were the bad guys, the dictatorship, and yeah. the Southerners
1: were fighting for democracy or something more akin to it. That's, That's interesting. So Sergio had some interesting like Italian perspectives on North-South civil war, but applying it to the U.S. or American civil war. And I think this is a good time to say the overall
0: tone about war in this movie is extremely negative whether you're seeing it from the northern or the southern side all of our main characters look at war as a waste every time they see soldiers they are badly wounded they're tired they're starving no matter what side of a war you're on it's fucking awful not only that None of these guys are directly involved in battles or anything, and yet they're having to deal with the problems
1: associated with the war yeah, it really is kind of sets up the backdrop to this whole movie, and like you said, there really is no honorifics or any talk of glory on the war; it's just all wounded people, amputations, disease, and dead people
0: right yeah they're they're not showing when when Americans talk about the Civil War. Most of the time we're talking about things like Gettysburg, things like Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves, you know, the good things that did come out of a horrible tragedy of brother fighting against brother. The, that is all
1: ignored in this. There is none of the high points. There's only the low points. It's interesting because you have that which happened, right? There, The history occurred, mm-hmm. and then you have the Italian perspective on it, That's glossed with their own perspectives of their own history. But in this particular movie, it's all backdrop. It's all like, it's not really, it's critical to the plot of the movie because it's a Confederate gold and the, some of the characters, Carson is Confederate soldier and all that. But it's really a backdrop to the main plot, which are these three characters and they're chasing after gold. Exactly. Their interactions with each other. Pure greed. Right. And so they get to this camp, and now everyone's in one place now. Yes, so we're still in Batterville. Batterville calls in
0: Tuco and has his heavy Wallace, as we are introduced to earlier. Uh, Wallace beats the shit out of Tuco to find out where this gold is buried. Tuco finally gives up. Oh, it's in Sad Hill. I don't know which grave. Blondie does. Fucking ask Blondie. By the way, this whole scene, like... I'm fine with the beating and the torture, but the whole, like, Confederate soldiers outside singing and playing music while crying because they know that, quote-unquote, one of their men is being tortured inside, who's not actually one of their men. It, it was, I don't know. It It was hard for me to really get on
1: with what was happening in this scene it was kind of strange and i noticed a couple of scenes like this in this movie and maybe it's just it's really long and so every now and then there's a scene that is like it's not core to the plot of the movie but it's in there and that was one where it was i think it was just showing the trouble of war but the, i do what, like when they pulled in blondie and how angel eyes treated blondie versus tuco oh god yes So, I mean, and this is
0: where we really get our full characterization of our three characters. You have, I mean, Tuco's already been really well built up to this point. You understand who he is. He's just an opportunist. He's looking out literally for himself. He has no honor code. Then you have Angel Eyes, who's a ruthless fucking bastard. We got that. We finally get a look at Clint Eastwood's character, and we finally get a look at Angel Eyes Full understanding of the man with no name. He looks at Blondie. He tells him to take off the fucking Confederate uniform. They're going to go find the gold together because he basically says, What? You're not going to torture me? Angel Eyes says, Would you tell me where it was
1: if I did? Nope. Well, all right then. I like too because Angel Eyes then says, Not that you're any tougher than Tuco, but you're smarter to know it's not going to help you. Exactly. Which goes back to Angel Eyes. you know, multiple times throughout the movie, he gets what he wants from people and he kills them anyway. Yep, and Blondie knows that shit.
0: Blondie's seen this man in action. He kind of understands that he's seen other people like this as well. He, he's he been around long enough to know the difference between a Tuco, who is basically a coward and does what he does because he's a coward, and then people like Angel Eyes who do what he does because he is a sociopathic asshole. Ruthless. Yes. And then you have Blondie, who obviously is greedy, obviously is a criminal, but somehow, deep in the very center of his heart, he's got a little bit of light shining through. He
1: he lets people off the hook when he probably shouldn't. So they leave the camp, and they go to find the gold. They That's go to right. Sidehill, Hill. But before they can get there... There's a bridge? <laughs> no, this is... All right, before not we, even before we get to the bridge,
0: we got to okay. talk about this. Blondie and Angel Eyes are camped out. It's early morning. Blondie actually hears one of uh, Angel Eyes' bandit guys in the woods and fucking shoots him. Tells all the other guys to come out. The line is...
2: If your friends stay out in the damp... They're liable to catch a
0: cold, aren't they? Or a bullet. <laughs> so Angel Eyes is like, okay, you called me on my bullshit. Everybody come on out. <laughs> Eastwood takes a look around. He's like,
2: Six. Perfect number.
1: Hm, is three the perfect number? Mm, yeah, I got six more bullets in my gun. <laughs>
0: Oh, thank you, Blondie, you're so fucking badass, and are you even trying? (laughs) That classic
1: uh, laconic
0: speech It's great. It's great. And so we end up, uh, they walk into a very small town, Uh, I'm assuming somewhere around the Mexican border now, it looks like the Union Army, right, that's coming through this little tiny blown out town?
2: Because they, they ride up to the
0: town, there's an army coming through, and the army stops to execute a prisoner. Blondie, Angel Eyes, and Angel Eyes men go into one of the blown out buildings, I guess, to like rest up. I thought I remember them showing a Confederate flag. Okay, I, could, maybe be I, I maybe could be wrong. Maybe it was the remember. Confederates, because they are retreating, and the entire time we're in this little town, you hear quote-unquote, big fucking air quotes, cannon fire. This is where I want to bring up the imagery a little bit with Sergio Leone. This town looks like a fucking German or Italian town that has been shelled by artillery in World War Two. It does not look like a town in the middle of the Civil War. Because <laughs> Let's face it, most battles in the Civil War were not fought in fucking towns. They were fought in giant fields and out away from everything, except for shit like Sherman's March, where he would purposefully go through cities and burn them to the fucking ground. This, it literally looks like a European town that's been hit by artillery, and the whole time you're hearing this quote-unquote cannon fire, you're hearing sounds of World War II artillery shells. (laughs) Like, come on, Sergio. <laughs> like, you you spent all this research and time trying to make this historically accurate. And then I've got to listen to World War II shells dropping the whole time.
1: But this did come out, what, 30 years, 20-something years after World War II. Yeah, this is 66. Yeah. So
0: 20 years.
1: And I'll be honest, like I don't know how the artillery capabilities of 1860, whatever, of the Civil War. um, And, you know, maybe give them some slack and it's just like artillery. Well, But
0: but you make a good point. He wanted the World War II imagery because he, he was aiming for more European audiences and he wanted them to really feel it. And I get
1: that. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, it takes me out of it. That's a good point. Like it's it's definitely not based on the artillery technology that the movie set in, but because of the context of the time the movie came out, you see that and you know what happened. You understand it. True. Sure. Whether it's historically accurate or not you understand it enough. True. I just I just wanted to mention it. It really bothered
0: me. It, it took though. it took me out of the movie. But I understand why Sergio would want it this way in the film.
1: I'm glad you pointed it out because I saw it and I immediately recognized it. And I'm like, oh, war, bl- war blown, town. You know, I recognized it for what it was, but I didn't really think about the in the how the technology of the time would have actually impacted the town.
0: Pause there. Go back a little bit. Tuco, who was in Batterville uh, Wallace, which was Angel Eye's second in the camp takes Tuco, handcuffs him to his own wrist takes him to a train station they hop on a train I assume, I think Wallace has a small line here but it's not exactly clear I think he's taking Tuco to a town to be hung for his crimes possibly collect the bounty on him and himself that's what it seems like so they're riding on this train they're handcuffed together Tuko starts to try and steal the key from Wallace to get out of the handcuffs. Wallace wakes up. He's like, "Oh, I've got to take a piss." And they're like, "All right, I'll take you over to the open door on the side of the train car. You can piss out of it." Tuko waits for his moment, shoves Wallace out of the train car. They both go tumbling not a very gracious fall at all i kind of have a feeling this was the real actors and not stuntmen doing this uh <laughs> it was not pretty they roll on the ground he immediately grabs a rock off the ground and bashes wallace's head in i can't lie i wanted to see more fight here this was this was literally over in like 10 seconds i wanted to see a like we we got served up a fucking like what four or five minute long scene of wallace beating the shit out of tuco while tuco could do nothing about it and the comeuppance is here's a rock i bash your head in and we're done come on i want to see a little more payback this is the guy that i have his full backstory i kind of feel bad for him even though he is a terrible criminal and a murderer and everything else give me more you know so, uh, and then comes the wonderful scene of him trying to break the handcuffs off with a rock. It's not working. So he drags Wallace's body onto the train tracks, sets the handcuffs across the track, waits for a train to come. Train runs over the chain and breaks the handcuffs off. Fucking, okay, we get a great shot of... Uh, what I'm assuming is a dummy of (laughs) Wallace's body being dragged under the train. I don't even know how they got this shot because the camera is on the undercarriage of the train. Looking under the train and dragging this I'm assuming dummy under it across the tracks.
1: I'm assuming dummy. We don't know for (laughs) sure.
0: Well there are a couple of great dummy like falls and stuff like that throughout (laughs) this movie and I love it. But most of the effects are generally pretty good. Way too many times are we served up to the actual actor doing very dangerous things instead of stuntmen. I mean, uh, I actually read some stuff like the guy who played Tuco hadn't worked with Sergio before, I don't believe. And he didn't realize that Sergio would just ask you to do things without really checking the safety on it. And Clint Eastwood even warned him, like, look, Sergio is dangerous to work with. If If you hear he's doing something dangerous... Watch out for yourself, don't just trust him. And this is explicitly shown in a couple of scenes that we're about to cover, one of which was the train one cutting the handcuffs. He't The actor playing Tuco didn't realize it, but when he was laying on the side right beside the tracks, if he, if he had lifted his head about five inches, one of the steps coming off of the train would have just taken his head clean off. He didn't realize it until he saw the film in theaters later. Lord. That's what I'm saying. Sergio oh didn't gosh. give a shit. Nobody told him how dangerous this could be. They were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lay beside the railroad. It'll be fine.
1: Keep your head down. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, my god! If
0: the director did something like that to me, if I was an actor, I would never fucking talk to them again. <laughs> yeah, you could not do that today. <laughs> so, this catches us back up to Tuco. Shows up in the same war-torn town that Angel Eyes and Blondie are in. One of the bounty hunters from the very beginning of the movie somehow survived the shootouts, recognizes Tuco and follows him into this blown-out uh, hotel. Tuco walks into this blown-out hotel, which doesn't have a roof, like the stairs are all ruined, walls are missing, and but he finds an intact bathtub full of water. <laughs> dumps in a bunch of bubble bath salts and shit and decides he's gonna give him a fucking bath (laughs) hops in he's all scrubbing himself and everything bounty hunter shows up he's got a gun on tuco
2: i've been looking for you for eight months whenever i should have had a gun in my right hand i thought of you now i find you in exactly the position that suits me i had lots of time to learn how to shoot with my left when you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk
0: Every gun makes its own tune and it's perfect timing large one. And Tuco shoots him with a gun from underneath the bubbles in the bubble bath. Because, of course, Tuco's still wearing his fucking gun while taking a bath. (laughs) (laughs) The actor even said, like, I wasn't trying to be funny, but when I said it, everyone on set just died laughing. So Sergio felt that he had to keep it in the movie. (laughs) And this is where, as we mentioned before, Clint Eastwood turns his head Every gun has its own ring and somehow recognizes that Tuco is in town and just shot somebody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but as we pointed out earlier, this gun, this particular gun, where did he get this one? He would have stolen it off the of shop? Wallace. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. Because that's the only place take... he could have had one.
0: He literally killed Wallace, took his gun so it's, this is like the third or fourth gun Tuco's had in the movie. Yeah. And they've all been
1: very different guns. They're just pistols. You hear a bullet. Let's say you have mythical, <laughs> blondie-level gunslinger hearing. You hear a, a gunshot, and it clearly came from underwater, because your ears are that good. And but he did shoot several times. The first pestered. first one was from underwater, but the rest was just pop, pa ba. But if you hear a gunshot from underwater... You know someone's taking a bath, and who would take a bath in this day and age?
0: In in this town, (laughs) at this time of day, with a gun around his neck, it's got to be Tuco. By the way, can we talk about Tuco, how he carries his gun with a fucking string around his neck? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, another behind-the-scenes tale... Sergio told Tuco he wanted him to carry his gun with a string around his neck. And he was like, how the fuck is that even going to work? So Sergio himself puts the thing on and he's like, look, this is how you can turn and pull your gun. And when he did it, the gun hits him right in the fucking nads. (laughs) So he was like, after he recovered, he was like, okay, you can put the gun in your pocket, but I want it on a string around your neck. (laughs)
1: I wonder why. Like, why would
0: you want? That? He just he just wanted something to set it apart. Yeah. If, if you notice, ev- all of our three main characters carry their gun in a different way. And I actually went back and watched For a Few Dollars More this week as well. Pretty much any time you have a shootout in one of Sergio's films, everyone involved is carrying their gun in a different way, which is interesting and I like it because it's not Like, if you think about, like, Tombstone and some of the American Westerns, everybody tends to carry it on their hip on the side of their shooting hand. Mm -hmm. So they can just quick draw, shoot one fluid motion from the hip like that. Whereas this, our main guy, Blondie, he does carry it on his hip on his shooting side. Tuco carries his on a string around his neck, usually in his pocket. And what's his name? Angel Eyes carries it on the opposite side from his shooting hand. Ah, very sinister. Mm. Which is left for left it carries it on his left. Yeah, which I mean, hey, great move! I love it. Pure genius on Sergio's part, or accident? <laughs> I, I I do think that's planned by Sergio. I yeah. think it's a wonderful touch, and I applaud him for it because it it does make for great shooting later on in the movie, at the very end of the movie, which we'll get to. So Blondie hears the shots from across town, magically knows it's Tuco, goes walking toward him. One of Angel Eyes' men uh, follows him through the town, loses sight of him, and Blondie gets the drop on him and kills him before he can do anything. So that's one of the Angel Eyes' guys down. He finds Tuco. He tells Tuco, Hey look, Angel Eyes brought me out here. But he's got other guys with him. I need your help. you still ha you still know where the graveyard is. I still know which grave it's in. We still need each other. All right, let's do this. Beautiful fucking showdown going through this town. You got fucking once again the cannonball quote unquote artillery shells going off in the town, which why no one knows because the army isn't there anymore. <laughs> it's literally just these like seven guys um but we do get a great scene of them shooting it out with guys on rooftops and everything
1: like that beautiful kills wonderful shots get to see our guys at work i guess give the audience what they want which is cowboys fighting in world war 2 <laughs>
0: yeah yeah
1: that's <laughs> yeah i mean what else could you ask for <laughs> it's
0: the american dream i guess <laughs> <laughs> and so they finally kill all the guys they think they're about to get the drop on angel eyes He's gone. He left him a letter saying he'll catch up with you later. So they are back on their quest. They're going to finally go to the graveyard. All right, this is one of the more, I don't think it's intentionally comical, but to me it's one of the funnier shots in the film, which is Tuco and Blondie riding down the road. They stop, they get off of uh, their horses or wagon or whatever it is they have now. And Tuco's like, ah, just, we got to get across that river, Blondie the graveyards across that river. All we got to do is get down there and we're home free. And suddenly soldiers pop out of the bushes from like four feet away. <laughs> they're they're like, hey, we're Union soldiers. Uh, what are you doing here? Uh, somebody tell the captain. We found some guys on the perimeter. Literally camera pans over and there's like, 300 fucking soldiers <laughs> five feet away from where they were and they had no idea there's fucking there's like
1: entrenchments yeah. and there's like...
0: <laughs> fucking fires burning yeah. like there's smoke everywhere you guys didn't see smoke billowing for five
1: miles and this enters one of the and i know you're gonna like i hope you're gonna explain this scene to me because when i got to this and remembered it because it'd been a while since i've seen the film originally i was like what why what What is does it go around like yeah i don't understand why is this here like what does this mean so, all
0: right and this is once again this kind of harkens back i think more to world war ii i do think this was an actual thing in the civil war though this bridge in world war ii especially bridges were a huge thing they would cut each other off you'd have one army on one side one army on the other they didn't want to destroy the bridge because After they took the next place, they had to be able to get their supplies through to the lines, but they couldn't let the other side have the bridge either. So, they would just post up on one side or the other, fighting with each other endlessly until finally someone broke through. However, this fucking shitty-looking wooden bridge (laughs) is across a river that we learn can literally be weighted across chest high by a couple of guys. So like horses could literally just ride through the river. No fucking problem. Like, and uh, to give, to give them some credit, the union captain, uh, I can't remember his name and I didn't write it down once again. Well, he did say names don't matter. So he did.
2: Whoever has the most liquor to get the soldiers drunk and send them to be slaughtered. He's the winner. (laughs) We and the ones over on the other side of the river only have one thing in common. All of us wreak alcohol. What did you say your name was? Uh, but, uh. And you? Uh. Uh, No. <laughs> yeah, names don't matter. <laughs> we have two attacks a day. Two attacks a day? Sure. The Rebs have decided that damn bridge is the key to this whole area. Stupid, useless bridge. Fly on headquarters maps. Yeah. the headquarters has declared, we must take that ridiculous fly <laughs> Even if all of us are killed. Both sides want the bridge intact. Intact is how the South wants it. And we want it intact too.
0: You'll all turn to dust. But one thing is sure, boys. Brant and French will stand unbroken. And this motherfucker. At first I was like, look at this Clooney looking motherfucker. And then he took his hat off and I was like, nope. Gerard Butler looking <laughs> motherfucker, this Gerard Butler looking captain, and he is just swilling down whiskey, he is drunk as shit, he doesn't give a fuck, I'm gonna sit out here and watch my men die for days on end, and I fucking hate every second of it, but I have my orders. Once again, another little little note
1: on war, it's fucking senseless. Mm, and yeah. I, I loved it. That is like the underpinning to every time there is a scene concerning the war. That's the point, is that it's senseless and this just destruction. And there's no dramatization of any glory or high points in that matter. But I still was so confused about the scene. About like, why? Why? I guess besides that? Is that, that I mean, that,
0: that's pretty much what it's there yeah. for. I, once again, I do think this was an actual thing that happened in the Civil War. Yeah. I, not a historian. Not 100%. But I do think this bridge was an actual contesting point between the two. And we're served up to a wonderful battle scene of the North and the South just running Charging at each other <laughs> on the guns. bridge with guns and fucking cannons just firing, fucking Gatlin guns firing all on the bridge, which I'm pretty sure would have destroyed
1: the bridge in the first place. And but whatever. <laughs> kind of like plot-wise, Blondie and Tuco get dragged on a mini side quest. Yeah, the bridge side quest.
0: So Tuco looks at Blondie and he's like, Look, Blondie, we gotta get across that bridge. But we can't do that while this shit's happening. Blondie's just like, We gotta figure out a way to get rid of the bridge then. And they bunker down behind some shit once the battle starts. And lo and behold, there are cases of dynamite just sitting there waiting to be used for no reason. (laughs) Little side note, dynamite wasn't actually invented until two years after the Civil War. So... Once again, way to be historically correct, Sergio. Gosh, Sergio.
1: (laughs) They didn't have sawdust back then, was the reason.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They find this dynamite. They wait for the battle to die down. They wait for everybody to go back to their places. They call a truce to collect the dead and the injured, basically. And our wonderful anti-heroes take a fucking... Shit, what do you call it? Case? Great. uh, The thing you carry hurt injured people on. Uh trestle <laughs> stretcher
1: stretcher they, they grab a stretcher
0: <laughs> jesus words they grab a stretcher throw a case of dynamite on it and they go out there acting like they're gonna pick up a wounded or dead soldier like even stop put the stretcher down act like they're gonna pick up a body and then just pick up the thing and run out to the bridge <laughs> and uh, they're floating the dynamite along wrapping it around the different beams on the bridge setting it up to explode along the way Tuko's like look We might not make it out of here. It's pretty dicey right now. And who knows? We might just get blown up, and then neither of us would be able to get the gold. So how about I tell you my half of the secret, you tell me your half. (laughs) Tuco, he makes Tuco go first. Tuco says, Sad Hill Cemetery. And Blondie says, The Grave of Arch Stanton. That's where you want to go. Now we have two characters, both of which know where the gold is. Question mark. (laughs) And blondie lights the fuse they both scurry away uh and i love this one shot they the captain of the union army who they were talking to earlier the drunken gerard butler looking mm-hmm. motherfucker he was wounded during the fighting and he tells the doctor Doc. <laughs> doctor doctor help me live a little more uh, okay. expect good news Fucking great. Bridge explodes. Fucking gigantic explosion. First off, first thing to mention, all of the dynamite goes off all at once. Not how dynamite connected with fuses works. Hate to tell you. (laughs) Especially when they're separated by like 30 fucking feet of fuse. It would have been a sequential boom, boom, boom. But we're served up to one giant fucking explosion. The bridge is just obliterated. If you watch closely, Clint Eastwood and uh, the guy playing Tukio weren't quite far enough away from the blast. Clint Eastwood got pissed because a piece of debris actually hits the sandbags about three feet away from him. It almost took his fucking head off.
1: Huh. Yeah, once again, Sergio. don't trust Sergio. Don't work for Sergio. <laughs> Unless you want to be in a great movie, but you will risk your life. <laughs> uh, another side note,
0: this was the second bridge they blew up for this movie. Oh no, <laughs> we, we didn't We didn't have film in the cameras. <laughs> Even worse. So all the extras in this scene, because you have two very large armies on either side of this river. Mm-hmm. All the extras were played by actual Italian soldiers. Uh, they got the Italian army to come in and play the extras. And one of the one of the military guys was given the job of actually blowing up the bridge. They were like, "Hey, you're a military guy. All you have to do is hit this button or plunger or whatever when we say this word." Well, one of the guys involved in the production of the movie was trying to get everyone ready for the explosion because the lighting had just gotten just right to what Sergio wanted, trying to get everyone ready, and he says the word too quickly. The Guy hits the plunger, detonates the bridge. No one was filming
2: uh,
0: they <laughs> apparently the guy the guy who fucked up and said the word too early just, like,
1: ran away from the production of the movie. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like he was Fair. like, oh,
1: fuck, just runs. Fair enough. Like, I think that's the right move. But like even today, in 2020, if I did that, yeah, I would get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, I don't want Sergio
0: to fucking yell at me in French or Italian or whatever language he's going to choose. I'm just going to fucking run. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, apparently, the quote from Sergio was literally an exasperated... Okay, let's go eat. <laughs> so they had to rebuild the bridge, reset it all up, wait for the lighting to get right again, shoot it. They oh. finally get the shot. It is a wonderful explosion. I love it. Just after the explosion, you see the Union captain smile, take his last breath, and pass on. I thought that was fantastic. That that character had the greatest little arc involved yeah. in this movie. <laughs>
1: it was really nice Uh, and two when you first meet him you know he's like oh whichever side has the most alcohol you know to deal with this bullshit that is war again saying war is bad uh and then i think he too says almost like they're on a schedule yeah we fight twice a day and a bunch of people die (laughs) yeah we we fight in the morning we take a break at lunch to collect our
0: dead we fight in the afternoon we take another break to collect our dead and then we stare at each other all night yeah hoping no one attacks at night <laughs> and yeah whichever side has the most alcohol because you got to keep your soldiers dumb enough and brave enough to keep going and letting themselves die mm-hmm. for a fucking bridge
1: <laughs> uh, which is now blown up <laughs> Which is now blown up. Side (laughs) quest completed.
0: When the bridge blows up, both sides start firing on each other, apparently for no reason. Our two characters basically just go to sleep for the night in their bunkered down position. When they wake up the next day, both armies are cleared the fuck out. Everyone's gone. They make their way across the river. No fucking problem. (laughs) Uh, This is when they come across a wounded and dying... Uh, Confederate soldier. Blondie walks up to him, throws his coat over the dying soldier, gives him a few puffs on his cigar. He hears a horse whinny out the window looks away, and when he looks back, the soldier's died. He just throws his cigarillo back in his mouth, almost grabs his coat off of him, stops, looks over to the side, there's a lonely poncho sitting there, and he throws it on. Mm -hmm. Now this is the only hint And I was surprised to learn this myself. This movie is actually a prequel to the other two men with no name. That's where he gets the poncho. That's his poncho. That's why he hasn't worn it throughout this entire movie. And honestly, the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, where the fuck's your poncho at? Where's the poncho at? (laughs) I want my fucking poncho. Come (laughs) on, man. And he doesn't get it until this scene. And that's... Kind of what finally brings yeah. the character full circle.
1: And that also kind of pointing out the poncho is really interesting because that action with that dying character kind of shows Blondie's character a little bit. It's this whole thing where he's like, he's not good. Like he was thinking about stealing this person's coat, but he's not completely bad either because he decided he wasn't going well, to at the end of the day.
0: And it's interesting. The uh, the soldier he comes upon is blonde-haired, blue-eyed, young guy. He kind of sees himself in mm-hmm. this guy's shoes, you know. He he sees what could have happened if he was dumb enough to sign up for a war of this mm-hmm. magnitude. And what what could have happened to him if he decided to be the heroic one, mm-hmm. you know, and fight for a side and actually stand up for something other than just himself. Right. And... I don't know it's once again it's a weird mixed message from Sergio of like yes war is senseless but at the same time our main guy is a bad fucking dude who commits a lot of crime and murder yeah like I don't know it's kind of it's hard to latch on to he's a great anti-hero and I do love these movies I love the character
1: but it does give you some mixed
0: feelings at heart
1: yeah And that is an interesting conversation that you can talk about in a lot of different movies, TV shows, real life history. This idea of like, uh, when you're talking about war, this idea that you can say, we're all murderers. We're all just killers. You know, we can pretend we're knights and we have a code of honor or we can pretend we're doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reason or whatever. But we're just killers. And maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not i don't really understand it but it's cool victors write the history
0: books There you go. You know and that's the whole thing every empire is built on the blood of someone every sometimes more than others yeah yeah Yeah. well some a lot more than others but they all were at one point or another Mm -hmm. not to get too fucking deep because uh i definitely don't have the education or training to get into such (laughs) things But he gets his poncho. He gets his poncho. He's leveled up. He's ready to roll. (laughs) He he has ascended to his final form. (laughs) Yeah, achievement Um, unlocked. (laughs) And this is when Tuco, who also heard the horse, jumps on the horse and starts hauling ass for Sad Hill Cemetery. (laughs) He's like, fuck yeah, I'm going to beat everybody there. I'm going to get the gold. I know exactly where it's at now. Blondie's dumbass told me the secret. What does Blondie
1: do? He just sits back. No.
0: No. He goes over to a fucking cannon, takes his cigarillo, oh,
1: yes. oh lights the
0: fuse on the cannon, and shoots That's Tuco right. off of a horse with a fucking cannon.
1: <laughs> Again, like a dead shot with a cannon, too.
0: <laughs> the cannon was already aimed perfectly. It didn't show him do anything. He just lit the fucking fuse. Even better, he somehow reloads it, takes another shot at <laughs> Tuco as he's running away. Like, come the
1: fuck on, Sergio. Sergio. <laughs> I like that, I, I forgot about that until you said it, but I, I like that, that there didn't feel like a huge rush from Blondie, uh, and, and again, because this whole thing of like, he seems to be this mystical, like, knows what's going to happen, because when Tuco gets the to the Sad Hill, this huge cemetery, I love these next shots, because it's him sprinting in, and you see like... I have no scope of how big it is, just that the shots say, this is a huge cemetery. Yeah, I, I love the... the. I do love these shots.
0: Tuco finally gets there. You get this kind of half shot of the cemetery where you just see a fuckload of grave markers. And on top of that, he's running down the hill into the middle. And it's almost in like a crater-looking hill. like, yeah, it's like a valley type yeah, of thing. Valley, it's yeah. weird. But on top of that, the... The graveyard or the cemetery is set up in a giant circle. Mm -hmm. So in the middle is just this flat area with uh, paving stones basically in the center. And all around the outside of it is a circle of graves. And outside of that is another circle. And it just keeps going out and out and out and out. And Tuco, he knows what he's looking for. He's looking for Arch Stanton. And he starts running in a circle and he starts with the inside circle and he just runs a circle, goes to the next row, runs a circle, goes to the next row. And as he's running, I love the cinematography on this because it looks like, I don't know how they actually shot it, but it looks like they're spinning the camera, keeping Tuco in the center of the frame and behind him. The gray, You can kind of see the graves at first, yeah. and then it speeds up, and it speeds up, and it speeds up until it's just a blur of things flying it's, by.
1: It's disorienting. It's it's disorienting to the viewer, and it kind of shows what Tuco's feeling of, like, I'm rushing. I have this Deadshot mythical, like, Deadshot's gunslinger behind me that I have to get there, and he gets there, and it's just a maze of, like, where the hell are you? You're finding a needle in a haystack. Not one mythical gunslinger, but two. <laughs> on your heels I've gotta fucking find it I've gotta fucking
0: find it he finds it he's down on his hands and knees just fucking scraping
1: at the dirt I like he he like grabs a a plaque of the grave next to it rips it (laughs) off and starts using it as a shovel and starts trying to dig these graves that are all like semi above ground yeah apparently back in the
0: day people didn't believe in the whole six feet under thing they just kind of like dug it barely deep enough for your fucking coffin and then just threw you yeah. in there
1: I mean to be fair I have no idea if they historically did it this way or not but to be fair with that many bodies I could see how that's a more efficient route yes. to go yes <laughs> I'll, I'll let it go I'm, and plus
0: I didn't want to sit there and watch Tuco dig a fucking six foot deep hole yeah. so. <laughs> Uh so as he's digging Blondie catches up. He's he. I love the way it's shot. Actually, you see Tuco scraping in the dirt, scraping in the dirt, and then just a shadow comes from the edge Mm. of the screen, and the the silhouette of Blondie's hat and head right over where Tuco's digging. He looks up. Blondie's got him at gunpoint. Tells him to keep digging.
1: Yeah. He like throws a shovel, and he's like it might be faster this way, or however he says it, it, it's
0: easier with this I think is what he says, something like that and as that's going on, immediately Angel Eyes walks up (laughs) and Angel Eyes is like digging goes faster with two he throws another shovel (laughs) there were shovels nearby (laughs) everyone came prepared
1: which, no one had a shovel up until this point but, hey, they're useful now, so might as well have them and I, d- I did appreciate this because if you're Angel Eyes and you're going to walk up and throw a shovel and say, get to digging Blondie, um, I appreciated that Angel Eyes had his gun out. Because oh. you, you can't walk up to Blondie or vice versa and have your gun in your holster. Oh, you fuck no. That, that does not constitute, you have the drop on them. That constitutes an even playing field with gunslingers <laughs> of that mythical
0: level. Yeah. So I
1: appreciated <laughs> that he had his gun out, trained on Blondie.
0: He was ready for it. And so Blondie refuses to dig. He asks him why and he tells him, if you kill me, you'll never get a cent of it. Why? Because that's the wrong fucking grave. That's right. Blondie is the smart one out of the two. (laughs) Tuco's still a fucking idiot. Still fucking trusted him, even (laughs) though he should know by now you don't trust these fucking guys.
1: And surprise, surprise, like perfect timing. It's one of those things where it's like. I let it go, the kind of almost corniness timing of it, because it's so cool, because he kicks open the grave and there's like a rotted corpse in there, no gold at all. Yeah. <laughs> like You have two people who drop shovels saying, like, oh, this is going to take a little while, going to speed this grave digging up, and it took like five seconds.
0: <laughs> but and, and it does once again show the intelligence of Blondie because he threw Tuco the shovel, told him to keep digging, even though he knew it was the wrong grave, because he knew Angel Eyes was still right He's behind him somewhere. On Angel. Yeah. yeah. He was probably... Hell, if I was Angel Eyes, I'd sit out in a bush somewhere, wait for him to get to the right grave, and then kill them both. Yeah. And that's probably what he was planning to do. But, as we learn, it's the wrong grave. And this is where Blondie comes up with his beautiful plan. Or, maybe he already had it planned, because of other things. That
1: makes sense, now that you say that, that he may... May have already had it planned, and that's the reason, like you said, that he was having to go to keep digging, because he's waiting on Angel Eyes, because as soon as they start digging the actual grave and pull out the actual gold, Angel Eyes can see from a mile away and just shoot him from a distance. Exactly. And so he's waiting on Angel Eyes to get there while he still has this in his back pocket, which is, you don't know where the actual grave is. Yep. So, his
0: final plan, I'm going to write the name that's on the grave on the bottom of this rock gonna place this rock in the center of that flat area in the middle of the cemetery and we're gonna have a three-way shootout and i love this scene i
1: actually wrote it down uh where are we at this is the best i i love this thing this to me is like um if someone's an alien came from another planet and they're like what is a western i'm like it is this scene yes i want to mention this first
0: This scene, from the time he places the rock down to the time the first shot is fired, it's almost four and a half minutes long. All right? Sergio makes your
1: ass fucking wait.
0: And I love, love the editing in this. You start out with this wide, wide shot. Of all three of them from on top of a hill somewhere way off. And they're all just slowly moving to their positions in the circle. Mm -hmm. trying Not exactly like equal distance from each other. But enough to the point to where it's a beautiful shot of them just slowly walking to the outside of the stone circle. You have all three of them looking around at each other. And it goes from these wide shots where you see all three close-up shots where you're just seeing the face of each one and then just the eyes of each one keeps cutting to where their hands are placed near their guns you got a uh, angel eyes with his gun on his left hip and his hand right hand on the bullets on the belts and he's just like every once in a while his hand will creep a little closer to the gun and then it'll walk back away from the gun, and it'll creep a little closer and walk back away, and it just keeps cutting to the eyes faster and faster and faster, building this momentum, building this tension. And finally, boom, boom, boom. Fucking Blondie pulls and shoots first. You got Tuco over there firing his gun helplessly because there's no fucking bullets <laughs> in it. And you got Angel Eyes hitting the fucking dirt.
1: Yeah. And and I really love it because throughout this movie, both between bon, uh, Blondie and Tuco, and Blondie and Angel Eyes, and all three of them had these dynamics that change throughout the movie. But all of the dynamics it, are we are working together because we have to. We don't like each other. If we if we knew if we if I knew the information that you knew, or if I had it, or uh, if things were different, we would just kill each other. And so now we hit that scene where they're, they're now three, that dynamic of we're working together to so that we can help each other out to get to this point. They're now at that point where like, okay, all bets are off. It's this every man it. for themselves now.
0: This is it. And they
1: all seem, you know, with their different levels of morality or personal codes or whatever it is, they all seem to be like, yeah, this is, we agree to this. Mm-hmm. We're all in on this. I agree. We live or die. This is it. Yep. Uh, uh, And this is where I wanted to mention, finally, I've been kind of
0: holding this back for the entire time we've been talking about this movie until now. Uh, The guy who did the score for this movie, apparently he refused to record the score to the movie. So most of the time, you'll film the movie, and if you have a composer doing the score for the movie, they watch the movie and have the band play along with it so that you can time the music to the cuts. Mm -hmm. The composer actually refused to do it because he loved the movie so much and thought it was so funny that he couldn't watch it without bursting out laughing and failing at composing. (laughs) So so that's one of the reasons this scene is so long. Sergio had him record all the music and then cut the movie to the music. He did it completely backwards.
1: Did he do that through the whole movie or just the scene?
0: The entire movie.
1: that's so restricting
0: right oh so, what a challenge so I, and once again i think that's one of the reasons the runtime is so long yeah. like it works fantastically in this scene specifically this yeah. this scene is beautiful i don't care if it takes four and a half minutes it was done the right way yeah but that is a weird fucking way to make your movie <laughs> We get we get the shots. Blondie kills Angel Eyes, first wounding him. And then as Angel Eyes tries to recover and pulls his gun up, he shoots him a couple more times. Not only that, he rolls into an open grave. And then Blondie shoots his hat
1: into the open grave with him. <laughs> I like it because after, I think the second shot, the first shot downs Angel Eyes. The second shot, he looks like he's dead, basically. And so then Blondie begins to walk towards Tuco. But every like couple steps he turns and just takes another shot, <laughs> shooting the hat in, shooting his body into the grave, like just making sure he's dead, or just being a general badass. No, he was being
0: a badass. <laughs> he he was like he was like, oh look, there happens to be an open grave, deciding, body rolls over in the yeah. grave because that's how momentum works, mm. I guess, and then shoots the hat in there with him. Tuko sitting there, what are you trying to get me killed? When did you take my bullets? Last night when you were asleep, you dumbass. You think I was going to put everything up to chance? Yeah. Hell no. Finally shows him where the real grave is. Digs so, it up. Finally finds it. And what?
1: you want to talk about what uh, Blondie does to Tuco here? He gets very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in classic Blondie, you know, man with no name fashion, he pulls out the noose. That's right.
0: Hey. Tuco was gonna hang him earlier I mean this this is a fun thing that keeps popping back up through the movie I mean he's saving Tuco from the noose Tuco tries to hang him with it he leaves Tuco out in the desert with it on I mean it's a wonderful little thing and it ties right neatly into a bow at the end as he makes him stand on the cross of a grave with the noose hanging down and basically just leaves him standing up there but leaves him his half of the gold right (laughs) Blondie loads up his half of the gold, rides off. Tuco's sitting there trying to yell for Blondie yeah, without losing like his balance. him out, yeah. <laughs> and our wonderful anti-hero comes back down the hill, aims his rifle. Which, by the way, aiming with uh, just iron sights from that far away at a fucking rope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no thanks, but... <laughs> It's Blondie. He pulls off the shot, shoots the yeah. rope of the noose one last time, and Tuco is saved.
1: Yeah. My kind of final thoughts on the movie, both after watching it and then after having this discussion, I love it because it's almost like you have these two regular people, regular in a different sense, but you have Tuco and you have Angel Eyes, who are both gunslingers, dead shots in their own way, highly competent in their own way but they're dealing with a mythical level gunslinger. It almost plays into this idea of myths in Greek myths or even uh, Norse myths or myths just in history and folklore in general, where there's a lot of myths that are sometimes attributed to one person or multiple people, and there's all these half-truths, and it comes up with this, or it makes me think about it, because you had this man with no name, um, and I can see these stories kind of filtering through the west where there's this man with no name that like shot the hats off of all these people that shot the rope that did all these mythical level things oh he shot the guy and the guy's body fell into the grave and then he shot the hat into it too like all of this ridiculous stuff that sounds made up and it almost is because it's being done by a made-up character that doesn't have a name he is a myth
0: well and it and it just kind of reminds you of how storytelling used to be back back before the internet back before everyone really understood that people were just people there were these myths and legends of the fucking gunslinger who could do all of these things Mm -hmm. The and even in the other two man with no name movies like the first one he rides into town a nobody that goes by the name of joe uh, people just call him joe and he fucking gets in the middle of this dispute between two families, doesn't, or eventually does kind of solve the dispute, but he's the one that comes out on top over everybody. Yeah. Like, he's always the guy that just blows through town, gets what he wants,
1: and blows right back out. Yeah, and and I think that's what I really love about it. And it makes me appreciate the characters of Tuco and Angel Eyes, because as competent as they are with their weapons and how good they are with what they do, or bad in some cases, they're up against a living myth. They're up against a superhuman figure. Absolutely. With no name. <laughs> so final final thoughts. Like what are your closing? Whew, that, I love this movie. As I have
0: detailed throughout this review, I have my problems with it. mm mm-hmm. They, most of them are stylistic choices I do think Sergio had his reasons I think they fit doesn't mean I have to love them mm-hmm. it, as far as the genre goes and I am certainly not the first person to say this this, this is the spaghetti this western this is the template Yeah this, this is what really put it on the world stage of saying this is a European version of an American western movie and this is how it's done right the cinematography is great the writing is pretty fucking good, especially, you know, for what it is. It's not perfect, but it's pretty goddamn good. And the acting is fantastic. The action works. You have this gratuitous violence that the Europeans of showing that the American West was not this beautiful place. It was not this wonderful place in time to be. It
1: was this awful, dirty, evil place filled with dirty, evil people. They took the romance out. That's right. And so this, the genre that we're in right now is Spaghetti Western. And so you're kind of saying this is kind of the rubric, this is the template that the others will measure up to. Absolutely. Every
0: This wasn't the first Spaghetti Western film, but it was the first great Spaghetti Western film in the eyes of most people. It wasn't even received well critically at Mm -hmm. the time. It took some time before people were like, oh yeah this is, this the is one. it but i mean all three of these films in this trilogy are fantastic so I, what
1: what are what's going to measure up like what are we going to talk about what do you expect for the rest of this genre
0: okay so like i said earlier this is the civil war spaghetti westerns these all have to somehow tie in with the civil war which a lot of them don't in this genre so we've We've picked four movies. By the way, the other ones we're going to be doing are, next week, The Return of Ringo, 1965. So if you want to watch the movie before the show, The Return of Ringo, it's on Amazon Prime right now. I don't know if it still will be by the time this comes out, but hey, go for it. Uh, Next will be Django, 1966. And finally, California, 1977. So, I haven't seen any of those three movies. Actually, that's kind of a lie. I watched The Return of Ringo today before we started recording. <laughs> and I will say, probably not the best choice for Civil War spaghetti westerns because the war doesn't play very much of a part in the movie. But it's there. But no, 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 no. We're going to roll with
1: it. Hey. It's too late. I watched it. We're doing it. <laughs> we waved the hand for Sergio's like World War II Bomb City. Give us some yeah. uh to I
0: But I I'm expecting a lot of the things we saw in this movie, but to a much lesser degree. I do mm. think because we started off with such a high point, it's going to be a little bit downhill from here. Spoiler alert, in the case of The Return of Ringo, much further downhill than here. <laughs> yeah, I... I think we're going to see some good shootouts, Yeah. probably some good explosions. I don't think we'll see any explosions that get close to that bridge in this one. Uh, I will mention this movie had a over, what was it, I think over a $2 million
1: budget back in the 60s. Which in 1867 money. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, tell me about it. I have it right here,
0: I believe. Yes, Okay, no, never mind. This was a budget of $1.2 million, and uh, the U.S. gross was over $25 million. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, it, it was pretty big fucking deal. I mean, that budget alone was twice the budget of, yeah. for a
1: few dollars more. Wow.
0: Like, it,
1: it, it's a big fucking deal. So, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which we just talked about, is kind of like the prototype the rubric, the template for Civil War related spaghetti westerns. Absolutely. The next couple we're gonna watch will be kind of measured against that standard. Which might um, be unfair. Which might be unfair. <laughs> okay. I'll go ahead and throw that out there, but, but it, that's what we're doing. It's, it's a good baseline to know, okay, what are we, what are we looking at? And I'm excited because I haven't seen any of these. I've seen the new Django, but not the original. Uh, Django Unchained? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and I want to go back and
0: revisit that one, especially after I watched the original yeah. Django. Um, by the way, Tarantino, who made Django Unchained, is a huge fan of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um,
1: Quentin Taranto?
0: <laughs> Quentin Taranto. Uh, tarantulino. Honestly, if you want to see some great quotes from a wonderful filmmaker, go look up Quentin Tarantino's quotes about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. He has some wonderfully flowery language to talk about this movie. But hey, you, as not so much of a cinephile as me, what, what did you
1: think? I really liked it. Um, I like it a lot, and I'm less of a seminophile, <laughs> but I do like a good story, whether it's a book or a TV show or whatever it is, and so I really like the mythical levels that were played up with Blondie or the man with no name. I love the pithy dialogue that he specifically says, but all the characters have. I love the villain and the buildup of the villain, and I especially love the closing scene where... They kind of you have all these these characters, the three characters that are very different, but they come together in a strange way where they almost agree to be enemies. They like there's this shared understanding. They nod to each other and they put their hand besides their gun and they all say this. Is, it's a free for all now. There's like a shred of honor in it and these characters that don't have it, which I really love. Um, so I, I love the movie and I'm excited to see how it kind of sets the tone for the, the rest of the movies in this genre. In closing, for
0: me, I'm giving this an 8 out of 10. I will say, on my scale, that's pretty fucking high. Mm And in order to get a 9, you got to be a damn near perfect movie. And in order to get a 10 for me, you literally have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. I need everything. The main thing keeping me from giving this a 9 is the plot holes with the soldiers who stole the gold. Mm -hmm. That's some sloppy writing. I mean, once again, why do you have a snuffbox with your alias's name on it? It mm-hmm. doesn't make much sense. But, you know, other than that, wonderful fucking movie. Hopefully next week we'll see when we get to release and record and all of that good stuff. But hopefully next week we will be coming out with our second Civil War Spaghetti Western episode on The Return of Ringo, 1965. If you want to watch along with us, please do. Other than that.
1: We'll see you next time. Yeah. And my name's Klaus. And I'm Jake. And this is Real Specific. specific. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking nerds.